I have uh, great news for you today. Since we started the Thread sermon series, going through each book of the Bible and preaching one sermon, I, I, I'm sure that many of you had Nahum circled on your calendar to make sure you didn't miss that one. So, how many of you have ever heard a sermon on the book of Nahum? One, oh, we got a few. Awesome, awesome. That was more than first service. Yeah. Uh, Nahum is... Probably not everyone's favorite book of the Bible. It is a challenging one, and yet it is God's word that has a lot to say to us this morning. Would you pray with me? And then after I pray, there'll be an intro video of the book of Nahum. God, thank you for today. Thank you for your word and how it shapes us and forms us, how it teaches us about who you are. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask right now that you would help me to show forth your character plainly in the book of Nahum so that it applies to each and every one of our lives today. God, we want to know you as you truly are. We ask that you would guide our time and my words. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Nahum was written by the prophet Nahum sometime between 663 and 612 BC. The book describes the downfall of the Assyrian capital city of Nineveh. In the book of Jonah, God sent the prophet Jonah to warn the Ninevites of the coming consequences of their evil ways. The people repented, but eventually renounced their repentance in favor of their former patterns of conquest and brutal dominance. The book of Nahum is written for the nation of Judah, assuring them of God's justice that will tear down the wicked Assyrian Empire. In describing the fall of Nineveh, Nahum presents the city as a universal example of the wickedness shown by the nations of every age throughout history in the Lord's just treatment of such evil. He reminds the Israelites of God's good and righteous character in his grief at the suffering of the innocent. Surely God will fulfill his promise to restore the world from its corrupt state and bring justice to the oppressed. God is a God of wrath, and that's actually good news. I hope to show you that today from the book of Nahum. In a nutshell, that's the theme of this prophetic book. Now, most of you probably haven't heard a message preached from the book of Nahum, and in part, that big idea might be why. It's a, it's a small book in the Old Testament, only three chapters long, and its main theme is an aspect of God's character that many of us find rather uncomfortable. It's easy to skip over. Three chapters of Hebrew poetry that are directed at the evil nation of Assyria and its capital city of Nineveh that stopped being a threat to anyone about 2,600 years ago. And so it seemingly has very little relevance to today, and yet it does, because it focuses on an aspect of God's character that many of us would like to ignore, much to our own spiritual poverty. Let me ask you a question. What do you do when God doesn't fit in your box? Or, or I'll, I'll, what I mean is this. What do you do when the Bible shows you something of God's character that makes you a little uncomfortable? Do you ignore the Bible and get on with your life? Or do you take that as an opportunity to slow down and allow your understanding of God to be reshaped by what God actually says about himself? See, that question is a huge part of my own story. 
I grew up in church and I came to know Jesus at a really young age. I was nurtured well by parents who loved Jesus and I was raised in a church where many people cared for me and poured into my life. But by the time I got to college, I had some significant holes in my understanding of who God actually was, God's character. And it's not that I was taught blatantly heretical things about God, but it seems like in my time in Sunday school and youth group and Bible camp and youth retreats, that it was hammered home to me that God is a God of love, but rarely, if ever, did I spend any time thinking about the wrath of God, the justice of God, the anger of God. It's as if those things were rather embarrassing traits about who God is that we tolerated, but we didn't really celebrate. I don't know, maybe I heard those things and just in my own youthfulness, I didn't have ears to hear. Maybe I was taught those things at a young age, but I just missed them. That could have been the case as well. But something happened to me my freshman year when I went to Northwestern Bible College. In my Old Testament survey class that was required of all of the incoming freshman students, we needed to read the whole of the Old Testament. And as I read through passage after passage and book after book in the Old Testament, I came to realize that my understanding of who God was, was deficient. It wasn't who he actually was. To put it plainly, God did not fit into the little box that I had constructed for him. He was far more than simply a big ball of love in the sky that if you hit with the right kind of prayer, blessings fall. He was far more than simply this old sagely grandfather type figure that gave suggestions and words of comfort but never commands expected to be obeyed. But as I read through the Old Testament and saw God unfolding himself in the scriptures to his people, I realized that God is a God who expects to be obeyed, a God who is holy. And a God who loves so fiercely that his righteous wrath and anger burn against evil and against wickedness. And so I'll repeat my question. What do you do when God doesn't fit inside your box? You smash your box. That's what you do. In these moments, there is very little temptation to squeeze God back into the little box that you have constructed for him. The goal instead becomes to know God as he actually is, because that's what our hearts most long for. He was the one that we were created to worship and stand in awe of. And so my invitation to you this morning, as we look at the first chapter of the book of Nahum, is to allow the God of the universe to smash the box that you might have placed him in. And, and that you would leave this morning realizing that it is a really good thing that God gets angry with sin. And he's willing to pour out his wrath on it. So how are we going to get there? Nahum chapter 1. Would you turn there with me? Now, if you don't know where the book of Nahum is, you're probably in good company. You can just turn to the table of contents. Uh, it's in the minor prophets. And so it's after Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and around Jonah and Amos and all of the books that we've been looking at. So if you're like, oh, Nahum, I got Nahum. Next week it's Zephaniah. So you're welcome for that. Nahum chapter 1, verse 1. It says, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. And so as we read, we read that this is a prophecy of Nahum the prophet, that he is from the village of Elkosh. Where that is, we don't know. And it's directed toward Nineveh, the capital city of the nation of Assyria. What's interesting is that this wasn't 
spoken to them, but was rather written down for them to read. The book is, or the vision is put in book form. And the people that it is primarily directed at, the Assyrians, are not the people that it is written to. Isn't that interesting? Remember that the Assyrians, the people of Nineveh, are the ones that God sent Jonah, his prophet, to about a hundred years before this, where Jonah preaches a message of God's coming judgment and miracle of miracles. The people of Nineveh humble themselves and they repent. They are broken over their sin. They humble themselves before the living God and God relents. He forgives them. He he doesn't bring his judgment on the city of Nineveh. But now, Nahum, a hundred years later, we come to see that the changes that were made in Nineveh during the preaching of Jonah didn't stick. And that once again, they had gone back to their violent, brutal, evil ways. And so God now raises up Nahum, a prophet, and instead of sending him to Nineveh like Jonah was sent there, he, was writ- he has him write down the certainty of the judgment, but then deliver it to the people of Judah, God's people. Why would he do that? So that the primary audience of his words of condemnation are not those that they're being directed at, but rather his remaining people, those who are in the crosshairs of Assyria's potential military machine. This is huge. Because what it is, is it's meant to be a comfort to God's people saying, I see their evil. I see their wickedness. And I will take care of it. I will bring down my judgment upon them. So that's the intro. Nahum says this about Nineveh. But then in chapters 2 and 3, we're filled with, are filled with explicit references to Nineveh in chapter 2 and Assyria as a whole in chapter 3. But the rest of chapter 1, there's no more reference to the Assyrians or to the Ninevites, which makes us ask the question, why? And I think what's going on here is that God's wrath toward evil is bigger than just his wrath toward Assyria or Nineveh specifically. It's meant to apply broadly to human evil and violence so that we know this aspect of God's character. The judgment that is about to be poured out on Assyria is to be poured out on all human violence and evil. And as we'll see in chapter 1, this is good news for all of those who take refuge in God. Let's read it together. Nahum chapter 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in, a, in whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Many of you are thinking, now I know why I haven't heard a sermon on, on Nahum before. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. 
For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. God turns his direction back to his people. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. Now he's speaking again to the Assyrians. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Imagine that being God's word or summary of you. Behold, verse 15 says, Upon the mountain, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Here's the big idea that we'll find in Nahum 1. God's judgment is good news for those who find refuge in him. Let me show you how it all fits together. In verses 2 to 6, we are introduced to the hot, violent wrath of God, the anger of the Lord. We read that the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. We learn in these verses that God's anger is very real and very terrible. He will unleash it on evil and violence. But unlike much of our anger, it is not quick-tempered or a short fuse, but rather God's anger is slow. Coming from his own name in Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in kindness. We read that God's anger is slow. He doesn't lose his temper, but rather it is a controlled but terrible rage that is fearsome to behold. See, in these five verses, verses 2 to verse 6, all seven of the Hebrew words for wrath and anger are used of God. Jealousy, vengeance, wrath, anger, indignation, fierceness, fury. In fact, it's in verses 4 to 6 that that Nahum leans into poetic imagery to describe the awesome ferocity of God's wrath and anger. It's truly terrifying language. Storms, dried up seas, droughts, earthquakes, fire from heaven. They are pictures of God's settled hatred toward evil and violence. He sees all, he knows all, and he will bring all things to account one day. For the Assyrians, that is this day. But then it raises the all-important question after describing the fierceness of God's wrath. In verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. See, when we start talking about evil, we can see it easily in in places like Assyria, looking at the Ninevites, studying a history book, and realizing how brutal and wicked and vile and evil the Assyrian Empire was toward its enemies. How brutal and oppressive they were, utterly crushing anybody with any hope of resistance. But if we're honest, and when speaking of evil, 
the reality is we're not just victims of other people's evil. We're also perpetrators of evil and sin as well. Sometimes we hurt other people in our sin. And so the question that he is asked of who can stand is actually also asked of us. How can we stand before God's wrath and anger and fury? And it's that question which then provokes verse 7's response, which is beautiful. Who can endure the heat of his anger? The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows who, those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. The only hope that we have when the storm comes when the floods rise, when the fire falls, when the earthquakes shake and, and rent even the strongest of places, is to find a stronghold that's even stronger than those things. It's to find a place of safety and security in the midst of the storm of God's wrath. Where can we possibly find that? Picture Helm's Deep and the Lord of the Rings with all of the orcs coming, and it's a place of safety and security, at least hopefully, right? Right? It's a place where, where even if all of these floods of your enemies come, you should be safe there behind these walls. But where is the safety, the stronghold, the security, the place of refuge from God's wrath? God himself is the only one. God himself. The only ha hope that we have to avert the wrath of God is to take refuge in him. His judgment on evil and his adversaries is certain. It will overwhelm them like a flood. So the question then is, how do we take refuge in God as our stronghold or our place of safety and security? How does God become our refuge in that day of his terrible wrath? We trust in Jesus. The only certain sacrifice for sins. See, it's not as if God's anger and hatred toward your sin simply disappears. There is no large cosmic rug in the sky that everything just kind of gets swept under and forgot about. No, his settled wrath burns hot toward your sin. It's just that in Christ, one stands in your place and bears it in your place. That's what Jesus does. See, it wasn't for nothing that Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because in that moment of human history, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, was truly and completely forsaken by the Father, bearing the wrath of God in our place, drinking to the dregs the cup of God's wrath, his anger, his hatred towards sin and lawlessness. But here's the good news. For all of those who put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. For all of those who find their refuge in him. Jesus was forsaken so that you never would be. Jesus was put out so that you could be brought near. Jesus paid your debt and he paid it in full, satisfying the wrath of God. While also re releasing his mercy and his grace toward undeserving sinners like me and like you. All those who find their refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ find their shelter from the wrath of God. Like 
Noah and his family hid inside the ark and thus were saved from the waters of God's judgment. So those who put their faith in Jesus hide in him. And God's wrath is fully satisfied, but not on us. So in Nahum, we see that the we see that the terrible, or that the anger of the Lord is terrible to behold. But we also see there is hope for those who find their refuge in him, in Jesus. Next, Nahum reflects on the futility of continuing to do evil in light of this. Verse 9, what do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They consume They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Plotting. See, though it seems like evil may be winning to the people of Judah and Israel, God says, I see you. I see them. And I will bring my judgment on them. See, it seems sometimes like evil is winning. Like there is no end in sight. And God reassures his people in verse 12. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. And then he turns his gaze toward Assyria once again. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile, he says. Those who are evil will get theirs. It is a certainty in God's sight. Their legacy, their name will be cut off. They will be brought low and humbled. And to those who have lived under the oppressive yoke of evil empires, namely Judah, living in the crosshairs of Assyria, you will be delivered, he said. I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. Now, I'm tempted to just continue to move on and show how God's wrath is actually good news to us. But there's a part of verse 12 that kind of makes me uncomfortable. I don't know if you saw it or not. Maybe it makes you uncomfortable as well. As God is speaking to Judah, he says, Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Now, why is that such a troubling verse? God is saying... Though Assyria has been a thorn in your side and committed incredible atrocities and will get their just due, God is saying, I have used them for my purposes. See, God raised them up and used them as an instrument or tool of his punishment and discipline toward his people's evil. Now remember, God is a just God. And Israel and Judah have transgressed the covenant that they made with God. And because of this, he raises up another nation to discipline them, to punish them, to bring God's judgment on his own people. And so the question is, how can God do that? They're even worse than Judah and Israel. How can God use a, a, an even more wicked nation like Assyria or like Babylon later on in order to punish his own people who are less bad? Anybody else wondering how that works? Well, actually, prophet by the name of Habakkuk takes up that very question before the Lord, and we're going to be studying that in two weeks. So if I can get you to hold that for two weeks, but I'll say this. God can absolutely raise up evil nations and empires as a means of his judgment without being guilty or responsible for their sins himself. All of their sin and evil will be brought into judgment one day, 
And the settled wrath and anger of God toward it will be poured out on those evil nations. And God is good in the midst of all of it. And how that exactly works, I don't know. There's some mystery there. But God is not responsible for evil, but he can raise up and use evil nations for his purposes. Anybody else's head hurt? I told you that was easy to skip. You probably missed it. You're like, now I got a bunch of questions. Thanks, Pastor Kyle. See, the Bible invites us to wrestle through our questions. It's not an easy book. Because life isn't easy, and God is not simple. He is complex and majestic, and the goal in our understanding of him is not just to figure him out, but to worship him in all of his fullness and his glory and his beauty, including his wrath and his justice and his holiness and his love and his grace and his mercy and everything. God is God, and that's who we long to know. So, so far we've seen the anger of the Lord, how terrible and awesome it will be. We see hope for those who find their refuge in him. We see comfort being brought by God saying, I will judge evil. I see what they do. Look at how the chapter ends. Do you see that? Verse 15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. God's wrath and judgment toward evil and violence is meant to be good news on the mountains. See, Nahum is quoting from the prophet Isaiah. It's the same passage that the Apostle Paul quotes in Romans chapter 10 about how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. Did that ring a bell in anybody's mind? See, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament uses that as an allusion to speak of those who bring the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we can be reconciled to God because what Jesus has done is a sacrifice for our sins, and that all who come to him can be forgiven and reconciled to God. That's good news. And that makes sense to us, right? Like, that's the good parts of God that we often love to embrace. Good, I can be reconciled to him. But the same illustration is used now in Nahum, Good news, God's wrath is coming. So which is it? God's forgiveness and mercy and grace? Or his wrath? It's both. It is good news when God judges sin and evildoers. It is good news to those of us who perpetuate evil and abuse. Injustice and oppression will get theirs. But it's also good news for those of us who sin. That God forgives our sin in Christ. Because another bears the wrath of God in our place. And and that for those who find refuge in the Lord, even this is good news. So there you have it. The book of Nahum. The good news of God's wrath to those who find refuge in God. Chapters 2 and 3 get more specific to the nation of Assyria, and specifically the city of Nineveh. And the book ends with the nations rejoicing over their defeat. Verse 19 of chapter 3, There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Answer, your evil has touched everybody, so when you fall down, they rejoice. And then it ends. With the nations clapping over Assyria's humiliation and defeat. Which leads us to wonder, how in the world should we apply Nahum today (laughs) to our lives? Why spend time here together as we gather? Haven't we moved on to better things? Well, here are three reasons. First, the book of Nahum reveals the beautiful character of God, the real God that you long to know. 
and knowing him as he actually is is way better than any caricature you could create in your mind. If you ever find yourself tempted to think, I wish God was more like this, or I wish God wasn't like that, stop. You don't actually want that. Because if you change God, if you make him more in your image, more what you think he ought to be, it's going to create a whole lot more problems. Because God is God, and you're not. And that's a good thing. And when something about God offends you, let me tell you, he's not the problem. We are. You're like, that sounds harsh, Kyle. Yeah, it is harsh. And it's true. And how messed up would the world be if I was God? Or if you were God? What a train wreck that would be. God is God in all of his fullness, in all of his attributes. And here's the thing. God is not a collection of parts like a, like a cluster of grapes where you have his wrath here and his holiness here and his love here and his mercy here and the fact that he's spirit here. No, God is all of those things all of the time so that God's love is a wrathful love. God's mercy is a holy mercy. All of those things are interacting with each other all the time. And if your brain hurts, good. You're not meant to fully understand God. You're meant to worship him. And so the book of Nahum reveals to us who God is, and that is good. Because if you take away the wrath of God, then you will soon wonder if he's actually good in the face of all the evil that we experience. Second, it is good news that God calls some things evil and some things good. How should we respond to evil and violence in our world? Here's the truth. None of us can be a consistent pluralist or a true relativist when it comes to moral things. As good as it, as good as it sounds to say, let everyone choose what they want to believe for themselves, at some point we have to draw a line and call evil evil. At some point we have to name some things as right and other things as wrong. And are you the one to do it? Or should we rather receive from God our creator what is right and what is wrong? And maybe if you want to qualify it and say, let everyone do what they want as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, push on that just a little bit and it doesn't work well. Because who gets to determine what's hurting others? Is it the parents in no-fault divorce saying, you know, we're just made an amicable split? Yeah, tell that to your kids who often deal with the repercussions. Or someone else saying, well, I didn't mean to hurt anybody. Well, you, well, you did. See, our, our sin is against God. It is an offense against our creator, but it also has horizontal impacts all over the place. And so who's going to determine what's right and what's wrong and when we conflict with one another? It sounds great to say, everybody figure it out just as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. But it does hurt everyone. So why not listen to God? It's actually good news that God calls some things good and other things evil. See, Assyria believed that because they had the military power and strength, that they could take whatever they wanted. If they wanted it and it was within their power to take it, then they should. The strong crush the weak. That's how nature works. It's the same kind of thinking that drives men like Vladimir Putin. I want Ukraine. I should take it. This is nothing new. But it's also the same kind of thinking that draw, drives rapists, Pedophiles, embezzlers, and thieves. If I want it, I can take it. 
Strangely enough, it's the exact same impulse that was in Adam and Eve in the garden, wasn't it? They saw something that they wanted that God said, no, this is not good for you, and they took it anyway. But whether our human laws get right and wrong right, God says of some things, no. He says no. And that's good news because he loves us. See, this is good news for us today to the person listening right now who's in an abusive marriage where you're so twisted up that you don't even know which way is up and which way is down anymore. You know that it's not right, but you somehow feel like it's your fault. God sees you, and he will bring his judgment on evil. To the person in the room who's had their childhood stolen from them through one trauma or another, maybe your parents treated you poorly, or maybe an abuser took something from you and left you broken and confused and feeling dirty, God sees you, and God will bring his judgment to human evil. To the person in the room who maybe was raped or assaulted in the last couple of years, God sees you, and he will bring his judgment on evil. To the person who has been robbed or cheated or swindled or never received justice, God sees you, and he will one day bring his judgment on evil. To the person who's worked really, really hard, Put in tons of overtime and effort only to have someone else steal the credit and get the promotion in your place. God sees you. And he will one day bring his judgment on evil. To the person who perhaps was wrongly accused and had your life and reputation taken from you so that no one trusts you anymore. All the sideways glances, all the job interviews that you think you nail only to never get a job offer. God sees you. And God will bring his judgment on evil. You see, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3 reminds us, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. It is good news that God calls some things good and other things evil, and that God will bring his judgment on wrongdoers. Now, if you are here this morning and you have never put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I would be abdicating my responsibility as a preacher to not tell you the truth. The wrath of God remains on you. And the book of Nahum should warn you that it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But I would also be remiss if I didn't also offer to you Jesus Christ, the wrath bearer in your place. And I don't care what you've done. God sees, God knows. And if you would reach out to Jesus in faith, if you would believe in him today, then he could be your wrath bearer so that you could be welcomed into the family of God. If you are a perpetrator of evil, you should rightly tremble at the word of God today and repent and run to Jesus as your stronghold. If you're in the room and you're thinking, oh my goodness, what happens if the person who hurt me so deeply runs to Jesus? How is that fair? I'm not sure I'm, I'm fully on board with that. See, in a unique way, if that happens, you get a, an interesting window into all the things that Jesus bore on the cross in a way that is far more emotionally real than it was even just a few moments ago. Third thing, it is good news for us that God will pour out his wrath on sin because that means you don't have to. I just want to explore this idea 
Many people think, I just wish that God was a little less judgy. You know what I mean? That, that he would be only a God of love. But if you think with me for a second, you don't want a God like that at all. And here's why. If you don't believe that God will bring his judgment on human evil, then you will in some way think that you need to. And that will drive you crazy. I'll say it again. If you don't believe that God will judge and execute vengeance himself, then you will feel a deep compulsion within your bones to execute judgment yourself. And that will drive you nuts. See, how does the endless cycle of violence and vengeance ever stop? How does one lay down the sword of vengeance and stop perpetuating the atrocities that have been committed to you? Is it saying, oh, it doesn't matter anymore? No, the answer to that is belief in a God who will pick up the sword and execute justice perfectly. Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf has written extensively on these ideas. He's from Croatia, and so he's from a war-torn land. He's written in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, much about forgiveness, the practice of nonviolence, and the wrath of God. And he says, the only thing that can break the endless cycle of violence in our world is believing that God will pick up the sword. Let me read his words. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with man in the West. But imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, why should we not retaliate? Why not? I say, the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of this thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die. Like all other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship, end quote. And so, brothers and sisters, this morning, I want you to see in the book of Nahum that the wrath and judgment of God is good news. Do you know what would be bad news in light of what we've seen? A God of indifference. A God who saw the horrible atrocities committed day in and day out and said, meh. A God who could endure the pain of millions of children without any emotion whatsoever. A God who wasn't hell-bent on executing justice to perpetrators and abusers would be bad news indeed. Like Wolf says, that God would not be worthy of our worship. But herein lies the problem. We are both sufferers and sinners. We are victims of other people's sins, calling out for justice, and perpetrators of sin ourselves. What do we really want then? A God of justice or a God of mercy? A God of wrath or a God of grace? Both. And in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are given a God of both. Let's pray. 
God, thank you for your word and how it provokes us and challenges us, but also invites us to know you truly. Lord, I pray that whatever box we might have you placed in, we would obliterate it today and stand in worship and awe of who you are and who all you are. I thank you, God, that you have provided for us a safe refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ who lived for us, died for us, and rose again for us that we might have hope. It's him that we praise. It's you that we stand in awe of. In Jesus' name, amen.